Thank you, Mandy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, you obviously sprung forward, and we're a little light today, so some of your friends did not. Maybe they'll mosey in a little bit later, but like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the very first time. So glad to have you here with us, and also welcome to anybody who might be listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday uh, mornings. Well, before I get into the message today, I just wanted to acknowledge that it is International Women's Day. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of our members, uh, Geneva, texted me this, this week and said, hey, did you know it was International Women's Day? And I said, I did not. You think we should mention it? She said, yes, I think you should. Uh, as you, if you've hung around here any length of time and you're familiar with our movement, you know that our church and our movement, the Association of Churches to which we belong, uh, celebrate the role of women, uh, not just in the world, but in the kingdom of God. And it is our desire uh, to scooch over and to continue to make room uh, to empower you, women, to do whatever God has called you to do. And so we have uh, celebrated that over the years and have welcomed uh, the role of women in our church. In fact, if you would extract the work of women in this church, we would not be here. We literally would not be here. And if we were here, we'd just be just scraping along just barely. And so we celebrate uh, women all over the world who are living the life that God has designed for them. And we especially in this church want to acknowledge that um, we celebrate that and we, we champion the work that God is doing in the life of women here. So we celebrate you today. Um, I mentioned our association of churches. Some might call it our denomination. I spent the week in San Diego, California, uh, because I, am, uh, I sit on the national executive team or the national board for our denomination uh, that helps to lead uh, and provide strategic direction for our 550 or so congregations. And Pastor David and Jenny and my wife were also there um, just getting some fresh vision for this year. And what you should know, and I want to bring you in onto this, what you should know is that our, our movement is realizing that there, there's a, there are pockets of dysfunction and our, our, our organizational structure is not healthy enough to handle a movement our size. And so we've been prayerfully seeking the Lord uh, for how we should reorganize and restructure our organization so that we can be healthy and so that we can be whole and move into what God has next for us. And what we've been asked to do is bring this reality to our local congregation so that you guys can be prayerful about uh, what God is doing in our movement. There's a lot of anxiety and lots of questions and some, a little bit of fighting and bickering among some of the leadership and in the local churches because we're in a season where we're figuring things out. I don't say that to panic you, but I say that uh, to invite you into, into prayer, right? And so when you pray for our church, would you also pray for our association of churches, our movement, that over the next 18 months, as we listen to outside uh, consultants and as we listen to the Holy Spirit, that we would land where we're supposed to land. And so also what we brought back from the meeting in San Diego uh, on the back table are just some booklets that give you a snapshot of what's happening in the vineyard. It's a really good snapshot of our, our, uh, the last year. I didn't bring enough so that you can take one, so don't take one. But if you just want to peruse it, please do so and put it back. Um, the, the national office is sending us electronic copies, and once we get that, we'll make sure you get it. So pray for our movement. God is doing something great. We're in a season of transition. We're at a crossroads, and I invite you to pray for us as we lean into that. Amen? Well, let me get into the message today. Have you ever bought something that you thought was real uh, only to discover that it was counterfeit? Anybody ever uh, be tricked. Some of you say, no, I buy my fake stuff on purpose. I know exactly. <laughs> Eyes wide open. I bought it on purpose. But uh, on <laughs> the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition on their website, they say that counterfeiting is up 10,000% in the last two decades, which basically means that there is a huge, huge, huge demand for faked goods. In fact, on the front page of the website, they say, if it's being manufactured, it's being faked. If it's being made, then somebody is making a counterfeit version of it, from handbags to jewelry to shoes to brake pads. 
iPhone cords, even pharmaceuticals, no product category is untouched by the counterfeiters. And so on their website, they give you some tips on how to spot a fake. And the first tip they give you is pay attention to the price. If the normal thing costs $7,000 and you're buying it for $7, it's, it's, probably, it's probably a fake. They also say to pay attention to the product quality. It's never the case that the counterfeit is the same quality as the real deal. In fact, there's a picture on, uh, online of the a fake uh, uh, Air Jordan logo. And... <laughs> That's not the real logo. The real logo, like Jordan is wearing shorts. You can't see. There's not that much definition. The product quality. There's a difference in product quality. And, and last they say that the place, the place where you get it, 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 it matters too. So if you normally have to go to a high-end store to get something, but your, your neighbor Joe has like seven cases of it, He's probably not an authorized dealer, right? You typically have to get the real, deal, the real deal from the right place. And so while these are all really good tips uh, to how to spot a, a fake or how to spot a counterfeit, uh, the primary way you know when something is fake is if you take some time to study the original, right? You can pay attention to all the three things that they list, but if you know, if you know what the original looks like, if you know what the original feels like, you're familiar with the branding on the original, you will likely be able to spot a fake a mile away. Thank you. If you study the original, right? And so why am I talking about this? Because I believe all these principles apply when it comes to a life of faith, and particularly a life with Jesus, because in our life with Jesus, we have to be what? On the lookout for counterfeits. Just like there's a huge demand for counterfeit watches and counterfeit iPhone cords and, and counterfeit designer purses, there is a huge demand for a counterfeit Jesus. And true to the, 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 the reality of those who counterfeit products, those who counterfeit Jesus are more than willing to lower the cost the lower the price. And in some extreme cases, they want to jack up the price, right? Make the barrier to entering the kingdom much higher, but they always want to jack with the price. The quality is never the same. It doesn't do what the original Jesus does, and the counterfeit just can get, be, be gotten just about anywhere, right? There's a huge demand for the counterfeit Jesus, and because there's a huge demand for a counterfeit version of Jesus, we must fix our eyes as believers or those who seek to follow Jesus and to be more like him and to live in and to live out his plan for us. We must seek out and pursue, get really acquainted with, to study the real Jesus. And I have the privilege today of beginning a series that will lead us up to Easter Sunday, a series that I'm simply calling The Real Jesus. And the goal of this series is to help you understand who Jesus is so that you won't accept a cheap substitute, that you won't go after or go following a cheap knockoff, because the knockoffs, they don't age well. They don't perform quite as well as the real deal. And so the goal is to examine Scripture over these next few weeks because Scripture is full, Old and New Testament, of key descriptors that give us a really good understanding, a really good composite of who the real Jesus is. And I'll just use as a springboard text for this series a passage of Scripture that we find in Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 16. It says, when he, Jesus, came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released 
and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And some of you are uh, familiar with this passage of Scripture. You know that this is like an Old Testament sort of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. But Jesus goes into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll to read, and just so happens they hand him this. And he reads this, and after he reads this, he basically says, yeah, this, this guy they're talking about here, this description right here, that's me. I imagine if he had a wireless mic, he would drop it at that point because this is, a, this is an awesome like thing here, right? And so everything that we read here is a fantastic summation of who Jesus is and what he walked out and what he tried to live out as he uh, discipled his guys and as he was working to extend the kingdom while he was on earth. This is who Jesus is. And so over the next few weeks, we'll sort of dissect this and unpack key components of who Jesus is so that together, when we put all these pieces together, you can have a big, good, complete picture, an authentic picture of who Jesus is, and you won't uh, fall for any substitutes. I want to begin, though, as I try to describe for you who Jesus is uh, with the subject of the, the sufficiency of Christ. I think that's a good place to start, Right? The sufficiency of Christ. And, and sufficiency simply just means enough. It's ample. It's adequate, right? And so if I were to say this a different way, I would say the enoughness, to make up a word, uh, the enoughness of Christ. See, the counterfeit versions of Jesus are, are always complementary. In, in other words, they, they pair well with the rest of your life or the rest of your stuff or your other idols, right? The counterfeit versions of Jesus are, are fun-sized. They travel well. They scale really well so that you can put them right up there on the mantle with your other idols, right? And the counterfeit version of Jesus doesn't, matter, doesn't mind sharing his throne with other gods, with other pleasures, with other pursuits. It's complimentary. And so that if you tried to live on just that counterfeit version of Jesus, it would never, ever satisfy. It would, it would never be enough. On the other hand, the real Jesus is always enough. Doesn't need any side dishes to go with it. Doesn't need any supplements because the real Jesus is what? It's sufficient. It is enough. He can stand alone. He can handle your troubles. He can handle your problems. He can handle your future. He can handle the curveballs. He can handle the attacks of the enemy. He is enough. The sufficiency of Christ. We'll begin there. Jesus says about himself in Scripture that he is the bread of life. And we're going to start this series with that description. If you just need a title, Jesus is the bread of life. If you can turn with me in John chapter 6, that's where we'll begin our series. John chapter 6. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those Bibles uh, to follow along. Uh, you can also follow along in, in your, on your phone or your tablet, and we'll also be projecting the words on the screens. John chapter 6. If you meet me there this morning, we'll start there. While you find it, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are enough. I pray, Father, that as we explore uh, who you really are, that you would release the gift of faith in this place, that we would trust you, that we would trust Holy Scripture and what it says about you, and that we, as we lean into faith, would begin to lean the full weight of our life on you. Father, some of us have come today with the little miniature fun-sized Jesuses in our pockets. We've been carrying them around. And Father, I pray that we would have the strength, the courage, the faith to trade those miniature counterfeit versions in for the real deal today. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do your work? Father, for those of us who are distracted, for those of us who are being oppressed by the enemy and tormented in our minds, anything the enemy might do to help us like miss what you would say today, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come. Put power on these words you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth would ring clear today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen. John chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 22. Now, you need to know that John 6 opens with Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's really significant miracles, a huge miracle. All these people following Jesus. Jesus does this miraculous thing, takes this little bit of fish, a few loaves of bread, multiplies it, and people are like loving it, right? And so shortly after that, Jesus walks on water. So there's a series of miracles that happen, and Jesus' fame is growing. And so he has a huge following by this time. We pick up the story at verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the, the only boat, and they realized Jesus had, got, excuse me, had gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, where, excuse me, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Verse 28, they replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Then Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though... You have seen me. I'm going to skip down to verse 41. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came from heaven? Verse 48. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate man in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever and this bread, which I will offer, so, excuse, which I offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Then the people begin to argue with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. There's a lot of repetition here. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I am him. Verse 59, he says these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he asked them, does this offend you? Verse 66, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Now, I know that was a longer passage, but it's a very key text, especially as we try to figure out who the real Jesus is. As we see in this text, Jesus has quite a following. Uh, there are crowds of people tracking his every move. He's very popular. He's got this celebrity status. Now, if he were on Instagram, he'd have a whole lot of followers. Um, he's going viral largely because he's done some very significant miracles like feeding 5,000 people. If you feed 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves, something tells me that the word's going to get out and other people are going to want to see that for themselves. Minimally, they're going to want more fish, right? They want to want you to do it again. And so folks are following Jesus 
But what the scriptures reveal is that they are following him for very selfish reasons. And then this passage, and I, did, I skipped a lot of verses, Jesus repeats himself a lot. And in repeating himself, we discover over and over where he's come from, what he has to offer, and what we must do to accept him. And in this text, Jesus makes a strong case for him being sufficient, him being enough, as he describes himself as being the bread of life, the life-giving bread of life. And so four things happen in this text that I want to call your attention to as Jesus is interacting with these folks who are following, following him all of a sudden. Uh, what Jesus does and says to them, I think he wants to do and say to us so that we might better understand who he is, namely the bread of life, namely enough, sufficient. I want to draw your attention to the four things that I see here. The first thing that Jesus does is Jesus questions our motives. Jesus questions our motives. He exposes our less than pure motives for following him. And I don't know if somebody has ever questioned your motives. You ever had somebody question your motives? That's a really off-putting thing, right? I mean, it, 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 it kind of puts you off a little bit because it's like somebody is questioning like my motives. They're, they're calling into question why I'm doing what I'm doing. It can be very off-putting. But in this case, and in our case, it's important. They looked around and they didn't see Jesus. They said, man, where did Jesus go? Let's find him. Oh, he went over there. Let's get in a boat. Let's go. They're looking for Jesus, which is a good thing. You're supposed to look for Jesus. But the reasons and the motives are suspect, much like ours. Scripture tells they found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want me to be with you because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. And so I think when Jesus is talking to them, he's talking to us because oftentimes we come chasing after Jesus not because we want to live the costly life of the kingdom, uh, because we want to explore the hard life and the narrow road that leads to salvation. Oftentimes we come because we want something. And typically we don't examine our own motives until something causes us to. We don't look at why we're doing something unless somebody presses back against us and says, hey, check yourself, check your motives, Right? Why is this? Because we often have a tendency to just assume that our motives are pure until someone says, check your motives. And this is what Jesus does here. Now, if we were to examine this in our own lives, I would ask you, sort of, why did you, why are you here? And not just why did you come to this church, but why have you, why did you lean into faith? Some of you came to church because you were lonely, frankly, and you needed some friends. If you're like me, you came to church because you were a preacher's kid and you didn't have a choice. My father would say, if you're not going to be saved, just play like it. I wouldn't advise that. And when the church doors were open, we went. I didn't have any choice, Right? Some of you came to church and came to Jesus, a place of desperation. You hit rock bottom so hard that you bounced. You tried everything. You've exhausted all your other options, and you thought, you know what? I might as well give this a shot. You knew a friend who'd be not inviting you to church. You said, listen, I got nothing else to lose. I've got nothing else to try. Why not? Desperate. Some of you were at a life stage where you say, hey, let's do it for the kids. But most of us didn't come here because we were seeking hard after God and seeking after the kingdom. We came typically because there was an issue. Typically because there was an issue, there was a perceived need. We didn't necessarily come in with pure motives looking for Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 27, don't be so concerned about perishable things, about food. He said, I know you're here because you, you want another fish dinner. You're hungry again. Or, or you're wrapped up in the spectacle of all of this. Jesus says, don't be concerned about perishable things like food, 
but spend your energy seeking eternal life that the Son of Man can give. And if he says that to them, we can only assume that he assesses that the motives and reasons weren't pure. That they had come not searching for eternal life that only the Son can give, but they came because they had some ulterior motive. Now, let me just say, God always uses those impure motives. He always uses those needs. He'll use those needs to get you in the building, to get you in somebody's small group. But once we're there, if we stick, he's got some words to say to us. He's got more of himself to reveal uh, because we just came, many of us, for the fish and the loaves. Spend your energy pursuing what you really need. And so in light of this challenge that Jesus sets before us, I would ask you today, why are you here? Why'd you come? Now, don't answer out loud. I just want you to be thinking about that because the vast majority of us might assess that we have come here for the wrong reasons. Some of us come with a sense of entitlement, a list of demands. God, you owe me. You need to do this. This, this, this is the due date. Make it happen. Others of you have gotten a hold of a counterfeit version of the gospel that said, all you got to do is come to church and everything's going to be okay and God's not going to change anything in your life. He's not going to require anything of you. He's not going to challenge you in any way. Boy, did you get that wrong. Why are you here? Why did you come? And so once we start wrestling with that, there's more. The second thing that Jesus does is Jesus explains what God wants from us. And some of you say, hold up, preacher. God wants something from me? I I didn't understand that this was an arrangement. I thought this was like I come to get something. I come to the sugar daddy Jesus, and he just like meets all my needs, gives me all the stuff, takes all my problems away. Nobody told me that God wanted something from me. And so Jesus takes some time to explain. If we stick around, he'll take some time to explain what God wants from us. And this is important, especially when you've come to Jesus and your motives are bad. You're desperate and you're frenzied. You want more fish and you want loaves. And Jesus points out that there's something bigger. Verse 28 says, they replied, okay, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Okay, you said, just don't come for the fish and the loaves? Cool. We want to do some of that cool stuff that you're doing. Like, what, what can we do? How do we get a hold of this? And Jesus says, again, slow down. You've got this all wrong. And he needs to say this to us because we're religious folks. We're, we're, we're used to doing stuff. We're used to performing. And once we figure out that our motives are bad and we've come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, all of a sudden we just want to do something. Okay, how can I make you happy? How can I please you? How can I get it right? What must I do? Jesus says, slow down, slow down. This is the only work God wants from you. Verse 29, believe in the one he has sent. You were waiting for something profound, deep. He said, we want to do miracles like you, Jesus. The only work you need to concern yourself with is believing in the one that God has sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, believe in me. Trust in me. Now, belief seems like, like, like a simple thing, but, it, but it's no simple thing, right? Now, belief is strong, And once you believe something, you can give your whole life to it. You can expend a lot of energy. You can aim your whole life at it, your resources, your heart, your treasure, your skills, all that sort of stuff. It's strong, but in my view, real belief does not come easy. And so when Jesus is saying, believe in me, as as we'll discover as we walk through this text, it, it is a hard thing to do. It is a real work of the Spirit to believe in Jesus. And so belief isn't this sort of surface level. I kind of think it's real. It's kind of like maybe Santa's real, like maybe he's not. It's not really consequent, but, but belief in Jesus is like, it's a life-altering, course-altering, trajectory-altering reality that is hard to come by. Because when Jesus says, believe in me, he's saying, bring your life, bring your stuff, and lean the whole weight of your life on me. 
the whole weight of your life on me. Yeah, bring your relationships and lean it on me. Bring your money, bring your schooling and your career and your vocational life. Like bring that and lean it on me. Bring your sexuality and how you think about the world, your sexual Bring all of that and lean it on me. Now I'm a larger man, so I just don't trust any old chair. Any big guys in the room? Now, if you're small and petite, you could just sit anything, right? But first thing I do when I go to places, I'm, I'm assessing whether that chair can hold my girth. Right? And if it doesn't appear that it will hold me, I'm just going to lean on something. I'm going to stand up. And so the same is true when we come to Jesus, right? Jesus says, sit your whole self down in this chair. And what we're doing as we assess belief is, will that hold me? Is that chair enough? Is that chair sufficient to hold my pain and my struggles and my doubts? Can I trust that chair to hold my resources and not drop it? Hold my marriage and not drop it. Hold my singleness and not drop it. Hold these kids and not drop it. Hold these grandkids and not drop it. Hold my career and my aspirations. That's a whole lot. And then not any old chair would hold that. And so I'm trying to paint a picture for you of how significant this request is. Bring all of you and sit it down in the chair of Jesus like that's, that's a tall That's a tall order. And so as he paints that picture, their eagerness subsides. They've got some questions. All of a sudden, they've got some tests for Jesus. This is how they respond to that. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? I don't know about you, but this seems really disrespectful to me. After all, they still got the fish grease in their beards from the last fish dinner he paid for. I mean, the lemon pepper seasoning is still in the beard. And they have the audacity with this tone to say, what can you do for us? Show us something. They said, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. Moses gave it to them. And Jesus checks them real smooth. He said, actually, Moses didn't give it to you. My father gave it to you. And he's graciously giving you some new bread in me right now. That was real smooth, though. And they said, well, give us that bread every day. They're starting to get it. They don't completely get it, but they're starting to get it. But this point is important for us because we've come to Jesus with having heard so many different things and for the wrong reasons. It's important and necessary for us to understand what God wants from us. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want all these small things that you try to give him to just appease him and to just satisfy him. He doesn't want your good works. Well, preacher, what does he want? He just told you. He wants you to believe in his son. Because if you do that, you'll sit down in the seat of Jesus with your money, with your good works, with all those little things that we just try to give him a little slice of. If we truly do the work of believing in Jesus then he gets everything else. He gets the whole us. But this is hard to do. You say, how do I even begin to do this? Well, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Got to believe in a God that I can't see. That this God came from heaven, the virgin birth, died, was raised again, 
is coming back, that's a tall order. I mean, that's out there, right? And so how do we believe that? You slowly, just one foot after the other, a little bit, all it just takes a little bit of faith. One step, one step. Maybe I don't sit down in the whole chair. Maybe I just put one, one cheek on first. <laughs> Give it a little test. I held that one. Let me slide the other one on there. Maybe, right? Believe in me, Jesus says. That's what God expects from us. And so as we get cooking with that, Jesus keeps walking them through it. The third thing he does is he reveals who he is. He reveals who he is. And this is the money verse here. He says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. He says, I am the living bread, verse 51. That came down from heaven, anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer you, uh, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Now, if Jesus is talking to me about this, I mean, he's got my attention now. Jesus, you can give me some bread that will make me never be hungry again? You can give me something that make me never thirst again? I mean, he says this essentially in John chapter 4 to the, 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 the woman at the well, and she was like, I'm all ears. Give me some of this water. I don't want to come back to this well anymore. I'm interested. And I would that Jesus stops here, but he keeps talking, and honestly, he gets real weird with it. He gets real strange with it. Verse 53, so Jesus said, again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood. Come on, Jesus. Drink his blood. You cannot have eternal life within you. But he keeps going. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh, and like, would you stick around if somebody's talking to you and say, hey, take a bite? He He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm tracking with that. Hey, but you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you really want. Strange. And we must ask, what on earth is Jesus talking about here? Some say he's conjuring up the image of communion, the Lord's table, which we'll partake in today, where the bread symbolizes his blood body that was broken, and the juice, the wine symbolizes blood that is poured out. There's symbolic, right? Accepting Christ, identifying with his future suffering. This is a foreshadowing of what he will do, and we would have to accept that. Uh, but it's not just that. It's also Jesus inviting us to devote ourselves to daily feast on his truth, his teaching, his guidance. To put it a different way, Jesus is setting himself forth as the Word of God. The Word of God. And when Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's essentially saying, live off of the Word of God. Me. Jesus is the Word that made flesh. the Word that's come down in bodily form. He's often referred to as the Word of God. And Jesus is saying, you need me to live. You need me to feast on. And if you were willing to do that, you will find that I'm all that you need. You'll find that I'm enough. So enough that you'll never be hungry again. So enough that you'll never be thirsty again, if you will, feast on the word of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God or the word of God. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the word. I'm sufficient. I'm enough. If you choose to devote yourself to daily feasting on my truth, my words, you will never be hungry again. To put it a different way, Jesus is saying, I satisfy. I satisfy. 
You have to understand, Jesus is talking to a first century Jewish audience. And their diet consisted of lots of bread. And some New Testament scholars say that, hey, no matter what was on the table, that these guys didn't feel quite satisfied. They didn't feel quite full unless they had some bread with the meal. And so when Jesus frames himself as the bread of life to a first century Jewish audience, they would have automatically understood that Jesus is saying, I'm one of the staples, the thing you've got to have on the table if you're going to have a good meal. And I realize that some of you, uh, being a diverse church, we have to contextualize this. For some of you, we're talking to our Asian brothers and sisters. Jesus might come to you and say, I am the rice of life. <laughs> might have a little something, might have a little fish, might have some vegetables, but you don't feel quite satisfied unless you have some rice with the thing, right? And now some of my friends here, if you come to some of the brothers, he might say, you know, I am the chicken of life. I'm not trying to be stereotypical. Hey, if, if Jesus said that to me, I'd be like, I got you. I got you. And whatever your cultural staple is, if Jesus were to come to you, he might say, I don't know, I'm the casserole of life. I'm the hot dish. I'm the ham of life. Whatever to you and you know, your cultural reality. But you get what I'm saying? Jesus says, like, without this, you won't feel satisfied. Without me, you won't be full. Without me... You won't have had enough to eat. But these people still have some major issues with Jesus. For one, they said, man, we know your mother and father. You're from Nazareth. You can't be that special. But the biggest issue that they have is all this talk of eating flesh and drinking blood. And frankly, I have an issue with it too. Jesus I'm a communicator for a living. I know how to keep the room, and I know how to send the room running. And Jesus, you're really good with the words. You could have played it this differently. But they have an issue with this. They said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, this is gross. This is disgusting. And Jesus could have framed this very differently He could have been more careful with his words. He could have read the room a little bit better. He could have been far less weird. But Jesus knows his audience, and he didn't make a mistake. He knows us. He knows that we've come gathering around him often for the wrong reasons. We'd rather do than believe. We want to set the terms. We want it on our turf. Above all, we want to be comfortable. And Jesus does what a master teacher does. Jesus does what Jesus does, and he's always shaking the tree to see what might fall off. He's shaking the tree to see who's come for the fish and the loaves. He's shaking the tree to see who's unwilling to do the hard work of leaning in, of believing of sticking with Jesus when he says something weird and says something strange and asks you for something that's costly. He's shaking the tree, and some of you have had your tree shaken. You're still hanging on, but just barely, but you're hanging on. You say, why does Gino preach like that? Why is he always upsetting us? Why is he? I'm shaking the tree. Because Jesus does. Because it's true that when Jesus tells us who he really is, there will always be people who will say, I don't know know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to pay that. I don't know if I want to surrender that. And so this is exactly what Jesus has done. They've stayed long enough for Jesus to reveal who he really is. And the fourth and final thing that Jesus does, in my view, is he clarifies Who's really with him? He clarifies who's really with him. Now, you have to understand that Jesus isn't discovering this in the moment. He's not surprised by who comes or who goes. Like, he he knows this. This clarification process is so that you know if you're with him or not. 
so that you know if you're willing to pay what it costs or not. Showing us who's really ready for this and who's not. The hot, satisfying bread of heaven, who's willing to pay what it costs to enjoy that for life? Verse 6, he tells us, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Verse 61 says, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? If I were to paraphrase that, Jesus said, you got a problem? (laughs) I hear you murmuring in the back. You got something to say? Or as the teacher would say, you you want to share with the rest of the class? Does this offend you? He knows it offends them. He intended to offend them. Does this upset you? Of course it's upsetting. Is this strange? Yes, totally. Does this offend you? Verse 66 tells us, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. And then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, Are you also going to leave? I love this part because, you know, Jesus rarely sort of asks us that explicitly. Much of his tree shaking and much of our Christian education sends us deeper into deeper measures of understanding who Jesus is. And the deeper you get, the better your understanding is, the more challenging it is. The deeper you get, the more costly it is. The deeper you get, the more those friends fall off. And the more those behaviors get called into question, the deeper you get. And it seems like at every stage, somebody is falling off. At every stage. Somebody's falling off. And as a preacher, you're trying to build a church, particularly from the ground up, you're always asking, man, did I do something to run them off? Is something I said? Did, did we not love them well enough? Did we not tend to them well enough? And sometimes we drop the ball, but oftentimes it's just that we're preaching Jesus. Oftentimes it's just that we're, we're, we're calling you higher to ascend to the mountain of God and you're discovering more of who God is. And as you discover more of who God is, you discover more of who you are. And Jesus just keep what? Shaking the tree. And at every turn he's asking, are you going to leave too? I love Peter's reply. Simon Peter said, Lord, <laughs> to whom would we go? Where will we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we, we know you are the Holy One of God. Oh, that my response would be this. When my tree is shaken and the things around me that sparkle and glisten seem far more, seem like a far better option than trusting Jesus. When Jesus says something challenging, when he puts his finger on a particular area of my life, or, or when he knocks these other idols off of his throne to make room for his girth, he said, you're going to leave? You got a problem? Does this offend you? Are you going somewhere? All that I would say at every turn, to whom would I go? In other words, where are we going to get what you provide anyplace else? Where does the hot bread of heaven, satisfying bread of heaven that doesn't need any fixings, where else are we going to get that? This response is indication, all the indication that we need that they know that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient. And so this presses up against us today because it asks us in what ways and what areas of our life is Jesus not enough. And some of us have come in today nursing all manners of issues, struggling beneath the weight of oppression and cares and anxiety. Some of us have come nursing besetting sins and patterns of behavior that we just won't let go of. It's an indication, friends, that that, that, Jesus, that Jesus isn't enough. See, I'd say I just got to have this relationship. I know it's toxic. 
I know it causes me to sin. I know we're sexually active when we should be abstaining, but I just got to have this. I know my boss and this job and this career path causes me to, to make unethical decisions, and I'm always bothered. My conscience is always disturbed, but, like, I went to school for this. I know this and that and this and that, and what you're saying is, Jesus, you are not enough. Your ways are not higher. Your bread doesn't fill me up. I need something else. And Jesus would say to you, you haven't tried the real bread. Yeah, because the knockoffs won't fill you up. The counterfeits won't fill you up. Of course you're not full. Of course you're still thirsty. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you try me, you won't be thirsty. And some of you, many of you, just haven't tried the real Jesus. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It might also say, taste and see that Jesus is enough. So if I leave you with any challenge this week, I would leave you with this challenge. Try him for more than a week. And my sense is that God is eager to prove to you that he is enough. And my prayer for you, and worship team, you can come up. My prayer for you is that as you try him, as you begin to lean the weight of your life and lean the weight of your relationship and lean the, the, the weight of your resources and your sexuality and your body and your friends and all this sort of stuff, as you begin to lean the weight of your life on Jesus, it might be uncomfortable, it might be scary, it will certainly be costly, but you will find that Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough. We'll explore more aspects of who Jesus is. But first you need to understand that Jesus is enough. He's the bread of life. And my prayer for this week is that you begin to trust him and to know him as that. And that he will show himself strong and capable and sufficient in your life. And we pray that the Lord would just continue to cement that in your hearts as we worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are sufficient. Thank you that you are not just enough, but you are more than enough. And for those of us who are here today, Father, and we're having trouble trusting you or having trouble leaning our weight on you, Father, I pray that you would release the gift of faith. That we would believe you. And even as we come to you, Father, with just a little bit of faith, Father, I pray that even though we may not trust you fully, fully, Lord, I just pray that we would just left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, one thing at a time, just begin to bring that and trust you. Where there's doubt and where there's unbelief, where there are counterfeit versions of you scattered throughout our life, Father, I pray that you would just knock them down. Even as we worship you today, would you just knock them down? Do your work. Come, Holy Spirit. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.